Hey folks, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, my own individual personal podcast. Delighted that you're listening to it. we got a great show today. We're going to talk to Steve Wynn and we're going to talk to Gordon Chang about what's going on uh, in China and North Korea. But first, a tribute to one of my favorite rock and rollers of all time, Chuck Berry. And then a little chat with uh, Chris Beach. And uh, we'll talk about things going on in Washington. Have you noticed there are some things going on in Washington? Okay, folks, let's get started. Well, I'm going to write a little letter. I'm going to mail it to my local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven, I gotta hear it again today. Yeah, that's Chuck Berry. I referred to him when I was a kid as Charles Berry, but I, I don't know if that's accurate. But uh, that was a sign of respect. A tremendous artist. We lost him this week. Uh, age of, what, 90, I think. Um, really... Everybody talks about influence. I'm not sure there's anyone who influenced more rock and roll figures than Chuck Berry. You hear that guitar, uh, guys, um, at lead-in to roll over Beethoven. And listen to the Beach Boys, some of their songs. Listen to the Beatles. Listen to Elvis. Listen to all sorts of people, and you'll hear Chuck Berry. He was tremendous, uh, one of my favorites. By the way, I will uh, correct the record uh, for those of you who are in error. I was on uh, Fox News uh, about a week ago on Sunday, and um, I recited those lines. Uh, it's the jumpinest record I want my jockey to play. And people said, no, it's the uh, rockinest record or it's the happiest record. I said, no, it's the jumpiest record. And that's exactly what he said. I know my lyrics. Please don't don't correct me. But uh, roll over Beethoven. Uh, school day, up in the morning and out to school. The teachers teaching the golden rule, American history and practical math. You're studying hard, hoping to pay. I'm not reading, Chris, am I? No. I'm not reading. No. Okay, fine. Sweet little 16, uh, rocking USA. I mean, I, all, all over St. Louis. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Maybelline, why can't uh, it just goes on and on. He uh, stayed in the St. Louis area, was married to the same woman for 65 years. Is that right? Pretty close. Uh, and uh, just had a profound influence on rock and roll. One of my favorites, uh, a real giant. And, of course, had that, uh, you know, people talk about Michael Jackson, the moonwalk. Well, Chuck Berry had that step. Uh, where he went across the stage uh, playing the guitar. Uh, I forget what they called it, but uh, really, really tremendous. I, I never, whenever I saw him on, on TV or, or listened to the radio, I always paused. And we will miss him, but his music uh, lives forever. Does this mean anything to you, Mr. Millennial? <laughs> anything at all? Well, I just want to know if you ever met him or saw him in person. Uh, I saw him in person performing uh, in, uh, where was it? Uh, I think it was in Nashville or Memphis. Long distance information, get me Memphis, Tennessee. Trying to get in touch with my Marie. That's another uh, Chuck Berry song. I think his daughter was Marie. 
Uh, yeah, but um, I mean, I had all his music. I had all his forty fives. All those I don't records. Even know what that is. You don't know what a forty five is? is. All right, somebody, please, uh, you know, s- send me a line here. I send Chris a line so he knows what a forty five is. But uh, Chuck Berry, tremendous, tremendous influence, tremendous, uh, tremendous character. Shall we move on to other things? Why not? Uh, healthcare. Uh, you know, this is it. The uh, the moment is here. Chris Beach, your uh, a K Street guy, L Street guy, Washington D.C. guy. This is the moment of truth for health care. Is it going to go through? Is it, first of all, do they have the votes in the House? Does Paul Ryan, the Speaker, have the votes in the House? I don't think they would bring it up on the floor if they didn't have the votes. Crazy. I think. Right. I, I think they think they have the votes in the House. I'm sure they'll lose some. Uh, it was interesting. The President Trump called out uh, specifically the House Freedom Caucus and mentioned Congressman Mark Meadows. And so I think they're worried they'll lose a few votes there. But overall, I think they have the votes. I don't think they would do this if they didn't have them. We are translating Trump. What did uh, President Trump say? That if you don't vote for it, you will lose your... He more or less said, yes, if you do not vote for this, you will lose your seat. What, he'll campaign against uh, the Freedom Caucus if they don't vote for the health care? Well, he didn't say that specifically. No, not specifically, but he's, he's a hardball guy. You he know? is. This is the art of the deal. Everyone says you know, the Donald, deal. Donald Trump ran for president saying that he was the master negotiator. Now is his opportunity. He has, to, he has to make one of the biggest deals of his yeah. life happen yeah. this yeah. week and next week. So you think it'll get through the House. I think it'll get through the House, too. I don't think they'll bring it up for a vote if it can't get through the House. Gets through the House. What happens in the Senate? Not so clear, right? That's the million-dollar question. Uh, we had this interview with Tom Cotton that you did. Uh-huh. He has reservations about the bill and wants to see things changed. Uh, they have left open the door to make changes in the Senate. They haven't said it's dead on arrival, uh, but that remains to be seen. And it remains to be seen if they can pick up some votes like Joe Manchin. Yeah. But uh, Democrats will be opposed, and we know there are a few Republican senators who are not happy, uh, even strong conservative stalwarts like uh, Tom Cotton, whom you mentioned, who we talked to about this. Right. And President Trump has gone out of his way. This is something we didn't really see with President Obama going to Congress, meeting behind closed doors with elected representatives. He's done this uh, with the House so far. We'll see if he does it with the Senate as well and really gets his hands dirty. I think that could have an impact on the ultimate uh, package that comes out of the Senate. But then again, whatever the Senate passes has to go to conference, and then we're back to see if we can rectify the House bill with the Senate bill. You know, I, you bring up something about uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, and I know not everybody listening is a Trump fan, heaven knows. But one thing you got to say about him, I mean, you point out the difference between him and Barack Obama in terms of going to the Hill. The guy takes his job very seriously. He's working very hard. He works seven days a week. He works when he's in Florida. He works wherever he is. Uh, and uh, he's at his desk. You know, he's doing his job. And uh, he's up early and uh, seems to go late. And uh, taking the job of president very seriously. I think people need to give him that credit at least. Yeah, and you can tell that from accounts, he really thrives in these person-to-person environments where he's trying to persuade people, trying to negotiate. Um, I think it was interesting, just from a 30,000-foot view, his relationship with Paul Ryan has really transformed over the past several weeks. You know, they had their issues in the campaign. They had their issues at the beginning of his presidency. But now they see mended at the hip working to get this legislation through, which is very interesting. Yeah, no, it it sure is. Uh, And by the way, this uh, legislation... Um, it's not what I would have picked as the first thing to do, uh, but 
I suppose I would have been brought along to do that given the way the campaign went about how much attention was paid. And if you pay that much attention, then you have to deliver. Uh, but um, there are other things I think I would have done first. This is a hard one. This is a real hard one. You know, you, you go for a few things you can get done. But it's not only consequential in itself. Uh, it's consequential for other things. They can't do the tax reform without getting right. clarification, clarity on the on this issue. So uh, it sets up a lot of other things. You wanted to comment. I wanted to ask you something just with your yeah. historical perspective. Is this the most consequential Republican legislation in the past decade or two? I can't seem to remember a piece of legislation with so much riding on it at a time when the country's particularly divided. Maybe. Uh, you said decade or two. I'll go back 20, let's see, 17, 21 years uh, to uh, welfare reform, mm-hmm. 1996. Uh, very consequential, very important. There's been a lot of nibbling back at that. But uh, that was a big deal, ending uh, welfare as an entitlement. Now, theoretically, this was uh, you know an accomplishment of Bill Clinton. But uh, we know that he wasn't really crazy about it. This was a campaign issue for him. I'll never forget hearing this ad about uh, welfare cheats and welfare loafers and then realizing it was a Bill Clinton campaign. <laughs> this was what they were running in Arkansas. But, uh, no, this is, this is colossal. This is very big. And it can be a big success or uh, it can be a big problem if they're not able to get it uh, across the finish line. Yeah, and you, we've talked about this before in the past that Republicans don't often get a chance to roll back entitlement yeah. programs. Uh, and in, I think in the larger context of politics, this is a unique moment uh, in American history. And a hard one, because when people have been given something, um, and in Obamacare as in welfare, it's people who were given something they weren't given before. It's often uh, hard to take that back or change the terms of the understanding or agreement. We've heard Secretary uh, Price, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, say everybody's going to be able to be covered. But um, there's no question. There's a shift. And uh, people will have to, you know, do something, you know, apply, do something different from what they're doing now. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, not ju- it's not just a government handout. So we'll see. Uh, it's uh, it's rife with problems, but it's, boy, is it important. It's really important. We'll be watching this one and commenting on it very closely. We'll be talking to Secretary Price here in the next uh, couple of weeks. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Folks, on Rush Limbaugh's show earlier this week, he cited the work of our friend Brian Kennedy. You know Brian Kennedy. Uh, he's the president of the American Strategy Group. And you've heard Brian and Joel Farkas on this podcast. Well, let's hear what Rush had to say about Brian. You know, based on the brilliant comments of our previous caller, if the Russians hacked the election and to, in order to uh, to damage Hillary, how, how, do, how do they uh, how do they explain all the Republican wins in the Senate as uh, in the House in all of the states? It's a great question. There's a, a story back on, I think it was the 16th, five days ago, by a guy named Brian Kennedy, Real Clear Politics. And he addressed the literal substance 
of the claim that the Russians wanted Trump to be president as opposed to Hillary. And his point that if the Russians were actually picking a president that they would prefer, the last person they would choose is Trump. And here's a portion of his piece. He said, never in the last 50 years have the Democrats believed that the Soviets and the Russians are even capable of doing bad things to the United States. So, so Mr. Kennedy here is right on the money. Uh, Brian Kennedy, you've heard him on the podcast before. I am also a fellow of the American Strategy Group, and I'm proud to say that the American Strategy Group brings us these important conversations on foreign policy and understanding the national security threats to the United States. Glad that Rush picked up on it. Go to amstrategy.org, amstrategy.org, or facebook.com slash amstrategy to learn more. Allow me to put on my ASG hat as we dive into foreign policy. Our featured guest, Gordon Chang, is the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. That was a prescient book. He's a columnist at the Daily Beast and a contributor at Forbes.com. He also blogs at World Affairs Journal. Gordon, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Bill. Let's talk about North Korea. You have uh, written about it a lot, spoken about it a lot. It's very much on Donald Trump's mind. Should it be? Well, definitely. Uh, Trump told the Chinese official in February that North Korea is America's greatest problem. And he's absolutely right about that. Because right now you have a regime in Pyongyang that looks unstable, which means that its leader probably feels insecure and has a low threshold of risk. And that means anything can happen. Now, most cases, things settle down. But nonetheless, this regime has gone through bouts of instability. And that, of course, is going to be an issue as we go forward. I'm uh, wearing my American Strategy Group hat uh, today as we talk. What should be the U.S. strategy toward North Korea? Uh, Rex Tillerson has said, and I want to talk a little bit with you in a minute about uh, your column about Rex Tillerson, but military action against North Korea is on the table. Uh, we understand that Donald Trump is weighing broad sanctions against North Korea. Uh, what do you think? I think the most important thing we should do is try the one tactic that we have not used over the last two decades. You know, Tillerson said very correctly on his trip, you know, American diplomacy has failed over 20 years. Um, the one thing that we haven't tried is to impose severe costs on China because Chinese banks and entities have been directly involved in North Korea's ballistic missile program, its nuclear weapons program, and other illicit commerce. Now, if we start unplugging Chinese banks from their dollar accounts in New York, that will rock global markets. But nonetheless, it will, for the first time in those two or three decades, show the Chinese that we are serious about protecting the American homeland. We haven't done that. We've always put the integration of China into the international system as a higher priority of, uh, than disarming North Korea. Yeah. So we've got yeah. basically a very arrogant Beijing right now because we've fed their sense of self-importance, and we've got a nuked-up North Korea. Talking about just, just one piece here, protecting the homeland. I saw you on TV somewhere. You've been on a lot, which is great. Um, talking about the, the capacities of North Korea – uh, to hit the homeland uh, with a missile. Is, is, is it truly possible that North Korea could land a missile on the United States soil? Uh, yes, it can. It certainly can do so with regard to Alaska. I believe that they've got three missiles that can hit the lower 48 states, the Taipodong-2, K-2, 
KN08, KN14. Now, the Taipodong 2 has not been tested at full range, and the other two haven't been tested at all, but they are based on proven technologies, and uh, they probably will work. The one thing that they can't do at this time is mate a nuclear warhead to the longest-range missiles, but that's just a matter of about four years or so. We believe that they can mate a nuke to their intermediate-range missiles, so they do have most of the technology they need. They just need some time to figure out heat shielding and a few other issues. Um, I take it that when we talk about military action against North Korea and say uh, military action's on the table, when the president says he's considering broad sanctions, and, and you responded by talking about China, uh, we don't we don't negotiate directly with North Korea. I mean, the way to deal with North Korea is through China. Is that is that right? Is that is that the route? I, at this point, yes. And and the reason is that uh, China uh, um, is responsible or accounts for like ninety percent or even more of North Korea's foreign trade. Um, if China actually started to cut North Korea off from everything, um, it, we may not be able to change the mind of Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea, but we certainly would be able to change the minds of people who are less committed to his rule, his regime elements, um, because they depend on him for uh, money, for gifts, uh, all sorts of things for their support. If Kim Jong-un isn't able to provide it, then uh, this regime could easily fall apart, or they could make a decision to really to go in a much better direction. China has the ability to do that. It doesn't want to exercise its power for various reasons. But nonetheless, um, this is something that we have to, uh, I think, push China and push them as hard as we can, because we're talking about the lives and security of America right now. Because when they are able to make a nuke to their missiles, um, we're in a world of hurt. All right, so we should push them. Uh, I've already mentioned twice uh, Tillerson talking about military action being on the table, but you just did a column, Gordon, uh, in which you talked about Tillerson's deference to Beijing uh, and wondering whether uh, that's a, a good, a bad thing, or maybe an unfortunate rookie mistake, as you uh, as you put it. Does this affect our dealing with North Korea? Well, it certainly does, um, because. You know, when we talk about our relations with Beijing with regard to North Korea, you know, we're talking um, about our relations with China on a whole broad range of issues because you can't separate them out. So South China, East China Sea, cyber attacks, increasingly predatory trade behavior, you name it, they're all uh, pulled together. And so uh, we have to, I think, have the correct policy with regard to China in general before we can actually push China on North Korea in particular. Gordon, what troubled you about Secretary of State Tillerson's comments about China or uh, on, on his trip? Well, uh, what Tillerson did, uh, and he was very good in South Korea and in Japan, the two stops before China, but during his press conference with Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, on Saturday, Tillerson repeated China's favored um, formulation of China-U.S. ties. He, uh, Tillerson said that we were guided by non-conflict, non-confrontation, mutual benefit, and win-win cooperation. And those are the essential elements of Xi Jinping's um, formulation of a new model of great power relations, which is how he describes U.S.-China ties. Now, for American ears, this is completely unimportant and insignificant. Yeah. 
But for the Chinese, though, it is critical because um, they believe in these formulations, and we have created a sense of expectation in their mind that we will not challenge the Chinese, for instance, in the South China Sea. And and when we do challenge them, because we will, because we don't take these words seriously, the Chinese will be upset. And I think that they have a certain amount of reason to be upset. We should not be creating in their minds any sense that we are cooperating with them where we should be confronting them, not working with them. Okay. I mean, this was so interesting to me because uh, President Xi Jinping said, uh, I'm reading from your article, quote, you said that China-U.S. relations can only be friendly. I express my appreciation for this. And then you wrote, Gordon, Beijing could not be more pleased with Tillerson's choice of words. Chinese state media is now crowing because the American diplomat, who seemed resolute in Tokyo and Seoul, appears to have turned deferential in Beijing. Boy, it seemed pretty innocent to me. You're right. American ears didn't hear that, but they did, huh? Well, yes. You know, and the reason is, first of all, the Chinese are very concerned about diplomatic formulations. But also, it's an insecure regime, so symbolism is important to them. Symbolism is really not that important to us in the scheme of things. Um, But for the communists, yes, very much so. So when Tillerson uses these words, it's important. Now, President Obama started to use Chinese formulations, and he dropped them um, as soon as he found that he could not work with Beijing on the way that he wanted. So the Obama administration, by and large, avoided using, uh, repeating China's words. And that was important to them. And and now we can see why it should be important to us. You know, Xi Jinping is going to see Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago April 6th and 7th, or at least the first week of April. Um, And all these issues are going to come up, and Xi Jinping is coming in thinking he's got the upper hand. Now, I don't think that he does, but nonetheless, it's going to be much more difficult to deal with China now that we have created the expectations in their mind that we are buying on to their game plan of the world. By by those words that we just uh, quoted, uh, that, that's why he thinks that he's got the upper hand when he meets with the president. That's right, because what we have also done, and this is maybe more of substance, we have signaled to the Chinese that we need them and that we're afraid of them. And because of that, um, they will be um, believing that they can push us around. They have pushed us around for a very long time, Bill. So, you know, that expectation on their part is not entirely unreasonable. But, Gordon, they surely have heard President Trump. And I mean, he is, he's not, shall we say, been delicate about the Chinese and dealing with the Chinese, correct? Correct. When Trump is Trump, um, the Chinese are very concerned. So, for instance, Oh, I could see let Trump be Trump. I can see it starting right there with Gordon Chang. Go ahead, Gordon. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, on December 2nd, when Trump took the phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwan president, um, that was great. That was great when he gave the interview to the Wall Street Journal and to Chris Wallace of Fox News saying that he did not feel bound by the one China policy. But then people got to him. And uh, in his phone call with Xi Jinping last month, you know, Trump says, oh, you know, I feel bound by the one China policy. And that, um, you know, basically Beijing felt that it won a test of wills. Now, um, Trump probably didn't see it that way, but that's the way the Chinese viewed it. And that's the way the rest of the region viewed it as well. So Trump is digging himself out of a hole when he meets um, Xi Jinping in Mar-a-Lago. He may not realize he's in it, but that's the way the rest of the world looks at it. Wow, very good. Very good stage setting, Gordon. Really excellent. I got to ask you one last question about North Korea that I've wondered about and uh, uh, several people I've talked to have asked the same question. 
do these guys know what they're doing? I mean, I read that some of these missiles were within 200 miles of Japanese territory or Japan. Uh, can they calibrate this well enough? Could something happen by accident? Uh, you see the point of my question? Yeah. Um, Kim Jong-un is, uh, talk about rookie diplomats. Um, Kim Jong-un is also a rookie in a sense. Um, he can push too far, uh, and that accident, that, that spiral downward, that could easily occur. Um, because the, I don't think the North Koreans understand the rest of the world, at least as they should, or they've become arrogant themselves, or, and I think this is probably the most probable, they feel they have little to lose. So, therefore, they can roll the dice, and that is, that's difficult for us to deal with. And right for the president to have this on the top of his list. Absolutely, and, and that's okay. good of Trump to do so. Well, uh, it'll be on the top of a lot of our listeners' list as well. Uh, uh, Gordon Chang is the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. If you want to find out more about it, read that book. Gordon, always a pleasure, always enlightening to talk to you. And thank you so much, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. We were just talking with Gordon Chang about North Korea and its relationship with China and its relationship with us. Now let's get a slightly different perspective from our next guest, Steve Wynn. Steve is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, and he's the new finance chair of the Republican National Committee. There are very few people who know more about China than Steve. He has built some incredible resorts in Macau, and he employs thousands of Chinese workers. Steve, in previous interviews, you've been optimistic about the relationship between the United States and China. With all that's going on now, why are you still optimistic? It takes a very intelligent person to arise to the top of these organizations, the United States government and the People's Republic of China. I say that when you have great intelligent people at the top of the pyramid, forget the short-term static that you hear at the end of the day they'll figure it out and a liaison a real relationship between the people's republic of china and the united states of america is the single most overwhelmingly powerful positive event geopolitically for the next 50 or 100 years that any of us can understand if we if we get the picture china and the usa will eventually find their relative places based upon res mutual respect. And those kinds of things usually happen when smart people are at the job. Xi Jinping and Donald Trump are smart people. You're confident this will work or work out, that eventually this will happen. Remember, China and Russia are competitors of ours on the international stage in many ways. There's a big difference between a competitor and an enemy. ISIS is an enemy. Radical, jihadist, Islamic forces at work in the Mideast are the enemy. The mentality that creates that, the, 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 the creates this kind of violence is the enemy of any civilized people. But a competitor is somebody else. Okay. That's someone who's right. after many of the same things you're after, and sometimes, you know, you rub up against one another. But the best thing about competitors is that we can compete but still be friends. We can still have respect. And that's right. how it usually ends up. You mentioned the Middle East jihadists. I have to ask you because it's uh, very much uh, 
uh, an issue of contention about immigration, the travel ban, as it's called. Do you have any view on this, any perspective on this? It is, it is undeniable, and it is not being argued, that any nation does not have the right to control its immigration on behalf of its citizens and in view of its own natural resources. Every nation has that right ethically, morally, and legally. No one would argue with that. Here in the United States, however, in the exercise of that undeniable right, we have to deal with the Constitution and its rules. So, enlightened, and it will be enlightened, reform and management of immigration intelligence in the United States has been neglected for generations. And it has resulted in all of the problems that Trump is trying to correct. But now, as we all do in business, to execute change requires great sensitivity to the details of change. And so I think that you will see the administration deal with this real problem that we have with uncontrolled flow of, in, in, in the immigration department. I think you'll see this administration come to grips with how to do what they promised to do and do it without the fear of being challenged in court. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not really distracted by the short-term thing we've seen. Oh, it got all the Democrats excited and they stomp around and everybody exaggerates and, and goes off the deep end and demonstrates. You know, when you would question a lot of the people who are demonstrating, they don't even know what the hell they're doing out on the street. Yeah, no, I know. So I'm not really impressed with the demonstration per se. I am impressed with, with intelligent criticism, however. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Um, I don't know if I said much there. No, no, you, you, no, you said a lot. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that works. This will surely uh, come up. This will be part of the discussion in the in the uh, confirmation hearings of Judge Gorsuch, the independence of the judiciary, and so on. Um, the charade yeah. that will be the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch. But, but yeah, well, there'll be some of that. But before we get to that, let me ask you. As an employer, does this thing bother you, impact on you as an employer, this, uh, the immigration discussion? Well, I, I'm, I'm closer to the, the, I've got a little more sensitivity to some part of this issue because, for example, right here in, the, uh, in this hotel in Las Vegas, we've got over 2,000 Latino employees, Hispanic employees. And I understand them. Now, they're all lawful immigrants because the state of Nevada and the Gaming Control Board are very, very, very strict on that sort of thing. So I don't have a situation where, where undocumented people can work in one of our buildings. But I know the way they feel. And the, 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 the legal immigrants live in the community and are friendly with, and very often neighbors with, people who've snuck in or come in, come in uh, illegally. And although they, they have total respect for law, they also have a great deal of sympathy for these people that have been here for a long time. And they get concerned about something may happen to that neighbor. So in my view, the final and intelligent method 
with which we deal with immigration reform will somehow take the cloud off people who have been here for a long time and give them more legal status. I don't know. I think probably they'll, they'll have to go to the end of the line and join in an attempt to be citizens the way anybody else does. But we can't take everybody from all over the world. The, the, the desire to come to America and to present themselves here cannot be the sole justification for them being allowed to stay. Yep. No country in the world yep. would agree with that, nor could this nation support such a migration of humanity. So the control of immigration is relevant and, and fit and proper for the government on behalf of its citizens. And, and, and President Trump understands that. And he's going to have to sort it out. And I believe with this cabinet, as, as these weeks go by, you will see that happen intelligently. I know Paul Ryan, and I have great respect as well for Senator McConnell and many of the people that are dealing with this problem, and I think they will get it, the job done. Okay. Last uh, <clears throat> bit of discussion here, Steve. Let's change directions a little bit. Um, one of the things in the past when you and I have talked that audiences love is when you offer advice, personal philosophical advice. Um, you are chairman and CEO of Wind Resorts. You've just become the finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. I don't know how many boards you sit on. People want you to do other things. I'm one of them who wants you to do other things. How do you manage and budget your time? Is there an answer to that question? Do you compartmentalize a day? Do you write it down? Is uh, are you scheduled? Uh, you schedule carefully. Or you schedule obsessed. <laughs> you, you know what I'm after. How, do you, how do you do all this? My longtime thirty odd year executive assistant Cindy Mitchum tries to oppose uh, more discipline in my schedule than I am instinctually, instinctually inclined to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I figured that out, but I now talk to her first before yeah, I talk I'm, to you. I'm, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've got the privilege of being able to do what I want pretty much when I want. That's a wonderful freedom. You bet. And I work hard to get to that spot. You bet. So I, I love the design process. I love thinking about the creative aspects of making a place where people really love to come. Somehow, that limited objective turns me on and makes me feel terrific when I think I've done it well with my colleagues. So the, creative, the creation of these buildings and the, the training and the support of the staffs that create the experience for the guests is an activity that I find totally satisfying and, and, and thrilling. But how do you do it? I mean, how do you do it? Well, I'm trying to figure it out. Okay. So I've been at it for 49 years. I'm still a student of that, and I always think we've got to build one more building because maybe the next time, maybe we'll really get it right. Oh, yeah. I'm very self-critical about those kinds of things because I think of myself as a student of it, never a master of it. So I'm engaged in a job that is totally satisfying for me. I've been one of those lucky people that, as wacky as my career, as my people think about what I do for a living, it's been really happy and, and satisfying for me, and still is. So I, uh, I budget my time, but I lean towards giving more time to that exercise of design and creation of buildings than I do anything else. All right, we have to leave it there for today. That's a show, folks. 
Remember to subscribe on iTunes to get all the latest episodes of my podcast straight to your smartphone or computer. I'm Bill Bennett. This is The Bill Bennett Show. We are translating traumas.